Well, great. Uh, welcome back after the summer. I guess some of you have just uh, returned from holidays, uh, as we have. Oh, and how's your, your week been? Has it been a delight? Has it been dreadful? How do you feel? A mixture, perhaps. See, this week we have a problem. I look down at the passage uh, we just had read to us. Look at the top of the, uh, the passage, uh, the title there. That's, uh, that's part of the inspired text. That's in the, the original scriptures. Uh, we can't avoid it. We are reading a psalm. Well, thank you for that. We are in the book of Psalms. It's not a surprise. But, uh, but this is a psalm for giving thanks. I wonder, are you in the mood for giving thanks? To put it more bluntly, are you in the practice of giving thanks? You see, this is a psalm for giving thanks. And we're never going to read it. And we're never going to use it the way it's supposed to be used if we never actually give thanks. So as we come to this passage and look at the reasons it gives for us to give thanks... It's worth uh, pausing and asking uh, why we might not be thankful people. Uh, Why is there uh, such a culture of thanklessness around us? And perhaps why is there a habit of thanklessness in us? I think uh, beginning where we are as a culture will help us to apply uh, this psalm as we go through. And the first thing to say is, as a culture, we're not very happy. A survey a few years ago by the BBC observed that we are three times wealthier than our grandparents' generation in the 1950s. We have more money, more free time, more toys. And yet we are less happy than those in post-war austerity Britain. And the writer of the article observes that the story of wealth failing to translate into extra happiness is the story of the Western world. Richer than we've ever been then and increasingly miserable. Hardly a formula for thanksgiving. And more than that, the the survey said, what do you think the government should do about it? And 81% said uh, they should be in in the business of generating happiness for us. That is what the government is supposed to do. You see, people are beginning to realise that having more stuff doesn't make us any happier. I wonder, why is that? I guess there's a number of factors. I I guess we'd all be in different places. Some of us will be grieving very deeply at the moment. And I guess we'd have every right to be struggling with thanksgiving. But there are some things that even our culture has observed. An article in the Huffington Post last year observed this phenomenon. And the writer, Tim Irvin, argued this, that you can measure happiness. He said, roughly, there's a rule of thumb. Take the reality, subtract what we expect, and if our reality exceeds our expectations, we're happy. If our reality is much worse than our expectations, we'll be deeply unhappy. And we could apply this, couldn't we, to the 1950s people post-war, I guess had fairly low expectations of, of what life would be like. And so when, when their lives were better than they expected, they were happy people. I wonder, what about our culture today? 
Does our reality exceed our expectations? The, the, the writer goes on to say, actually, the, the children of that post-war generation, I guess many of us, uh, we saw the, the prosperity of our parents' generation and we were encouraged to, to reach for the stars. I told that we could have anything that we wanted, be anything that we wanted. Urban says, uh, the baby boomers worked hard to have a little garden for themselves when they retired. Uh, but generation wires like me, and I guess like many of us, uh, we want our garden now. And we want a garden filled with roses. And in fact, because we're, we're so special, because the, the whole, the education system, our parents, everybody's told us that we're so special. Uh, we don't just want a garden with roses. Uh, we want a dancing unicorn in the middle of it. See, Urban says, we, and I think he's right, we've, we write our own story. We've written a story in which we are the centre and uh, we expect the whole of uh, the created order uh, to sing to the tune we're writing. Does that make sense? I think there's a lot, a lot of truth in, in that observation. And so he says, uh, generation wires expect the top grades in their class without having to work for them. Uh, they expect the best job in the city. They expect to get promoted when they've done hardly any work. Because the world has to lay on a plate the things that I want, because I'm so special. And so we live in a generation where reality minus expectations, incredibly lofted, uh, inflated expectations, equals misery. Uh, where does that come from? Uh, give you a Christian perspective, just as we come towards the text. Uh, the Christian psychiatrist Glenn Harrison, in his book The Big Ego Trip, suggests that uh, this uh, self-esteem movement that's been running, I don't know if you've, you've come across it, it's, it's everywhere in our culture, is partly to blame. He says, uh, Western culture is so scared of damaging us, damaging children in particular, uh, scared of puncturing their fragile self-esteem, that we remove children from competitive sports. So everybody wins. Uh, we... Uh, we find that every school report has to be positive, even when the child has been a disaster. I, I was very grateful for that, personally, when I was at school, but, uh, but isn't that the case? Uh, we, we live in a culture where uh, the self-esteem of every, every person has to be nurtured and inflated. So it's not a surprise that those children have grown up to be adults who can't lose, must win at all, at all costs are told that they're brilliant, superstars in everything they try. They can be what they want, have what they want. Now, I appreciate the sentiment. I want to encourage my kids to work hard and achieve whatever they want to achieve. But can you see how in a culture where everybody's self-esteem has been pumped up so high, not everybody can be exceptional. And lots of people are going to be unhappy. And that's what Harrison argues is the case. We all want to be... David Beckham or Rihanna and we just can't and so lots of people are, are deeply miserable and, I, and I, I lay all that out because I wonder whether whether that secretly gets into our psyche as well as Christians I wonder whether uh, how do you react how do you react when things don't go the way you'd hoped 
when your expectations aren't met by the reality. Do we accept that the world doesn't sing to our tune? Or do we get monumentally cross about every trivial thing? See, are we thankful people? Are we in the habit of being thankful? Or are we more like cross people? Frustrated by uh, all of the things around us. Uh, We are a generation that has more blessings, more to give thanks for, than any generation in history. So are we more thankful than every generation in history? Uh, This psalm uh, calls us to give thanks. In fact, not just us. Uh, Look down at verse 1. The whole world, all the earth, is called to give thanks. See, we, we focus on our personal circumstances, don't we? They're our lives, after all. And we, we can place them in the centre of our, our vision. And then we feel miserable because they're not what we wanted them to be. But the psalmist is asking us to please take our eyes off ourselves. Lift our vision to something much, much bigger. Something that the whole world can see. Something awesome, something that's truly praiseworthy. It's something that should cause you to praise whether you've been a Christian for decades or even if you're just looking into Christian things for the first time. But it is something that cuts to the heart of our self-centred narratives. Our passage divides, as the NIV has put it there, verses 1 to 3 and verses 4 and 5. And the two big points are pretty clear, aren't they? Verse 3... Know that the Lord is God. And verse 5, for the Lord is good. And it's really that first point that that cuts us, I think. The Lord is God. See, the psalmist tells us that something in us needs to change. If we're miserable at life circumstances, or even if we're fairly indifferent and thoughtless about God as we plod along, then something needs to change. And it's not our circumstances. It's something in us. Know that the Lord is God. For you see, this cuts us because if the Lord is God, well then I am not, and nor are you. That Generation Y habit of writing ourselves into the centre of the story, well, that's got to be wrong, hasn't it? Because we're not the centre of the story. Of course, there is a story. It's just I'm not the author. I may not even appear as a remotely important character in the plot. If it feels to you like the narrative that the world is living is running roughshod over the story that it should be telling, the story you want it to tell, it is because we, we long for what we want whilst God is the author of the story. I'm not God. I don't get to write the story. And the rest of the world, the rest of the world knows that. Nobody else is singing to my tune. I I don't have artistic control over the universe. There is only one Lord, only one God, and neither you nor I are he. And it gets worse for us, doesn't it? It is he who made us The Lord is God, it is he who made us. That is, uh, the Lord alone 
is God. He alone has the power and he has the right to rule. He has the right to rule because he made us. The things that he made are his and he can do what he wants with them. We like to think we're independent. We like to think that we're God. But actually, God alone is God. We are his and he can give us whatever part in the story he wants. He writes it and we live it. Of course, we can stand up to God, wave our fist in defiance and say, no, 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 I'm in charge. But as Psalm 2 tells us, God just laughs. And that's right, isn't it? Because it is laughable to openly defy God like that. It would be like King Canute standing on the beach ordering the waves to recede. It's foolishness, legendary foolishness. We are not God. See, I wonder whether when we find ourselves disappointed with life, frustrated, angry with the way something has turned out differently to what we planned, I wonder whether we're just beginning to see the fruit of our desire to be God. We write our own story, don't we? Uh, But God tipexes out all the stuff that he doesn't want to see and writes a new story over the top. And it can be really frustrating. It hurts. It hurts us because it undermines our sovereignty, wounds our pride, as well it should, because the Lord is God, and we are not. I guess you might see it in a number of ways. Uh, In our house, you see it with my kids demanding their pudding before they've eaten their dinner. I want it now. And we say no. The world doesn't dance to their tune. I guess it happens when we are overlooked for promotion. We, we were certain we were going to get and was part of our planning. I guess it happens when we'd hope to be married or have kids and we haven't yet. I'm not meaning to diminish the pain of any of those things. Uh, they can be uh, rightly frustrating and difficult to deal with. But when we get angry about the story that God's writing for us, does it not show that we want to be God? To change his script, to make him dance to our tune? And the Lord in his kindness doesn't give us what we want. He gives us a wake-up call. He asks instead, are you really God? The Lord alone is God. His plan, his rule, his agenda... And we simply misunderstand our place in the created order if we want something different. Verse 3 speaks of God's right and power to rule. I guess it might leave us frustrated, fatalistic. We just have to make the best of whatever God dishes out to us. And I guess in a sense that's true. There is a sense in which every person in the world just needs to come to terms with the fact that God is in charge. And we are not. But actually, if you're a Christian here this afternoon, then that sort of bleak picture can be turned on its head in the rest of our psalm. Yes, in a battle of wills between us and God, we will lose. If we try to be God when he is God, we will be defeated. But come with me through the rest of this psalm and see that actually there are really good reasons to praise God. It just undermines our pride. See, the verse goes on to say, doesn't it? Look down with me, verse 3. 
And we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. You see, this is where the, the, the lens, as it were, zooms in from the whole created order to the people of God. The psalmist is no longer dealing in generalities, true for the whole world, but focuses on the special people of God. Everyone is created, but not everybody is God's treasured possession. We are his sheep. That is stupid and prone to wander off from the shepherd, but but under his protection. As Psalm 23 reminds us, the shepherd may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. But he is leading us, he is with us, and he's taking us to secure rest in greener pastures. In everything that God does, in the whole that story that he's written, he is for us. Of course, we, we can't oppose him, and nor can anybody else. But it is a wonderful thing that this sovereign God is for us. He alone is worthy of praise, which I guess is why the whole creation is called to that praise to sing joyful songs in verses 1 and 2. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Come before him with joyful songs. And if we can't, why not? If we'll humble ourselves then we can. You see, it's hard for us sometimes, isn't it, to sing joyfully to the Lord because the circumstances of life are not joyful. How do we sing joyfully to the Lord when our treasured plans lie in tatters on the floor? This call to praise in verses 1 and 2 is a call to a new attitude that will proceed to to great praise and joy. See, if verse 3 tells us that the Lord is good, verses 1 and 2 tell us how we ought to respond And that word at the beginning of verse 2 is crucial here. That word worship. It literally means to serve God with our whole being. It means to submit ourselves. It means to bow before the king. It means taking our plans and handing them over to God. And letting him be in charge. Instead of clinging on to our plans. And being frustrated with God when they don't come about. We submit our plans to him uh, who is in charge. So the choice is simple, isn't it? We can pretend that we write the story and be frustrated at every turn. Or we can allow God who writes the story to lead us through it. Now that poses a a dilemma for us, doesn't it? I guess if you're looking into Christian things, you might be saying, well, okay, I can see logically why I ought to submit to God. Because he has power and he has authority and he has a right to rule. But is it good for me to do that? Is it it a joyful thing? Will it really lead me to praise? See, we're not comfortable, are we, as a culture with the idea of absolute power? I guess it comes up images of of North Korean leaders uh, with whole nations under their thumb. A threat to their people, a threat to the world... And the old dictum, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, comes to mind, doesn't it? Uh, so it's great for us to remember that the Lord is not only God, but verse 5, the Lord is also good. So if verse 1 to 3 is, uh, is about God's power and authority, then verses 4 and 5 
is about the way that God uses that power and authority. I see, what if, if the one with absolute power was actually absolutely good as well? When verse 5 tells us that the Lord is good, the psalmist isn't using the word good in the way that we would tend to use it. It's not the pizza was good, it wasn't great, but it was okay. It's not that sort of good at all. The word here means good in a perfect sense, infinitely, consistently, unwaveringly good, holy and pure in every conceivable way. It's the same sense of the word good uh, that God himself uses of creation when he makes it in Genesis 1. Uh, God himself is goodness. Everything he does is perfectly good. That's how he uses his authority. That's the way that he writes the story. It's a goodness that lasts forever. Did you notice that? Uh, the Lord is good and his love endures forever. See, my goodness, if, if such a thing really exists, is quite fickle. Just ask Mim. One minute uh, loving, the next minute uh, harsh and unkind. Uh, but God's goodness is infinite in its scope and in its duration. It never stops. It, he's never anything less than perfectly, wonderfully, beautifully good. He never changes. He's in no sense fickle. He never shows the slightest inclination to turn away from his goodness. What he is, he always was and always will be. The God that the psalmist knew here is the God that we know today and the God that we will continue to know a billion years from now. He'll be the same God to you today, the same tomorrow as you walk out into the week, uh, following the plan that the Lord has laid out for you for this week, this month, for the rest of our lives. He writes the story and he is good. He may not be good in the way that we would be good to ourselves. His vision is much greater than that. He's infinitely good in scope, uh, but the psalmist wants to give us even more. He wants to give uh, concrete meaning to that. So look down with me. That goodness is described in terms of his love and faithfulness. Uh, the word love there is a really important Old Testament word. It's the word chesed. It's a word that is, is pregnant with meaning for, for the Israelite reading this and singing this. Because it captures the core of, of who God is in his commitment to his people. He is love. Steadfast and unwavering love. And never less than perfectly realised love to all his people. His faithfulness speaks of God's consistency, his utter trustworthiness. His promises are his bond, and he never breaks his word. In fact, those, those two words are how God describes himself in Exodus 34. You remember when Moses asked God to describe himself, to tell him what his name means. And the Lord takes Moses and puts him in the cleft of the rock and passes before him, declaring, The Lord, the Lord... The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is love and faithfulness, compassion and grace. He forgives sin but will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now there's a tension here that's been here 
from the beginning of, of Exodus onwards, how is it that the Lord can be both forgiving and leave sin unpunished? I take it that, that this very passage is the thing that the psalmist is reflecting on. And so as he gives this song of thanksgiving, he's giving it as one who has been forgiven. Here is a God who forgives sin. Here is a God who is infinitely, perfectly for his people in forgiving them. And yet a God who takes sin seriously enough that he must punish it too. Well, if if the the heart of worship in verse 2 is to submit ourselves to God's plans and purposes, the heart of sin is trying to live independently of God. And we have a choice, don't we? Uh, We can choose to submit to God and be part of his people and and be embraced by the God who forgives sin. Or we can choose to rebel against him, to stand aloof from him. Uh, But he is the God of infinite power and he will not brook any rebellion. He won't leave the guilty unpunished. We've nowhere to hide. So if that is you uh, this afternoon... Be sure that your sins will find you out. If you stand outside of God's people looking in, then let me say you are welcome amongst us. Uh, Come back and back. Uh, But don't stand outside God's people for too long. Because you stand in a very serious place. This is a God of all power who will not brook rebellion. Come and worship the Lord with gladness. Because, see, this Lord... He's utterly opposed to to those who rebel against him. But for those who will submit, for those who will come to him, who belong to his people, then he's utterly committed to our good. See, by trusting in Jesus' death in our place, that rebellion that God hates is punished on our behalf. And we are forgiven. And you see there, don't you, how committed our God is to our good don't you will you turn to him will you come to him he is the Lord in fact the psalmist calls him the Lord four times in these five verses and again that's, that's God's covenant name it's the name that, that represents to his people how committed God is to them he's the God who covenants with them who makes promises to them who has embraced them as his own people everything about this psalm says you My treasured people, I love you. I'm utterly, utterly committed to your good. So if you're here as a Christian this afternoon, do you know that the Lord is good to you? That he's utterly committed to pouring out his love and his faithfulness on you? I take it that's why the scene shifts from verses 1 and 2 to verse 4. See, in 1 and 2, we're we're celebrating the Lord's power and his authority. But it's in verse 4 where we're told to approach him. Did you see that? Because God is utterly committed to us and to our well-being. We can approach him. We can enter his gates and come into his courts. We can draw near to him. See, sometimes we're tempted to keep God at arm's length for fear of what getting too close to him might mean. But here we're we're encouraged to come right up to God, come into the temple courts, draw near to the place where God dwells with his people and praise him. See, where where verse 1 and 2 is a general celebration of God's greatness, verse 4 
is about thanksgiving. It's about offering praise. This is the point where we realise God is for us. Who can be against us? And so we praise him. Now we give thanks. We give thanks, don't we, when, when somebody gives us something great. A Christmas gift that's right off our, off our hit list, as it were. And when you get that gift, you give thanks, don't you? And so it is here. We've received a gift. Of course, we've received many gifts from the hand of God. But what is the gift here? The gift is God himself. But the core gift in this psalm is this covenant relationship with God that never wavers because our God never wavers. The psalm is is not reflecting on the little gifts in our lives. It's reflecting on the greatest gift. It's reflecting on something that's visible to the whole world. Of course, he's looking back to the Exodus. The psalmist is looking back to the Exodus and looking at the way God revealed himself as a covenant-making God who rescues and loves his people, one who protects Israel. How much more, then, we as God's people today, who look back on a greater Exodus... Of course, there's so many things we could say about what God has given us through Jesus. The way he gives us a future that's certain and wonderful. The way he gives us each other. The way he walks with us day by day. But surely the thing that we're supposed to see here is that that the God who loves us went through suffering for us. The God who loves us conquered evil through his suffering, showed his strength in weakness Friends, if we ever doubt that God can work through our sufferings for good, look at the sufferings of Jesus. God turns the greatest evil in history into the greatest victory for us. And as sin lies bleeding on the cross, as Christ died, we are assured, surely, that God is totally and utterly committed to us. We're assured, in fact, aren't we, that God's plans for us are just far greater than any plans we'd come up for ourselves. We wouldn't write this story, would we? Would we send the Son of God to the cross? Of course we wouldn't. We lack the imagination for that. God's ways are far above our ways. And so when he chooses not to give us the things that we have our hearts set on, it is because he has something much greater for us. It's an act of his kindness not to give us the things that we desire. Because he loves us and wants to give us himself. Wants to give us something far better than we can conceive or imagine. Friends, he may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. But he is with us. When everything else is stripped away, we have this God leading us to better pastures. The whole earth is called to celebrate this great God up, isn't it? We're called to approach him, to become part of his covenant people. We're called to worship him with our whole lives, to submit our plans to his, to accept that he knows how to be God better than we do. Whether for the first time or for the hundredth, will you submit your life and your plans to the one who holds all our futures in his secure and tender grip? Don't remain outside. I worry sometimes that for those of us who are British, we allow our Britishness to sort of to excuse grumpiness. It's kind of a, a national trait, isn't it? Grumpy ingratitude. 
sort of mumbling under our breath about the service in the restaurant or whatever. Friends, that's not on. For us as believers, that is not on. The Apostle Paul, doesn't he, in Philippians 4, he writes from a Roman prison where he is rotting away and he says, I've learned to be content in every situation. Because he knows the God who gives him every good thing. It would be a scandal if we left here ignoring the things that God has done for us, is doing right now for us, and will do for us every day until the Lord Jesus returns. God has given us so much. Can we really be people who who don't celebrate that, who don't praise him, who don't come into his courts with thanksgiving? But if we're going to do that, we're going to have to crucify our pride. We're going to have to crucify our worldly ambitions, our desire to write the story, and instead entrust ourselves to the one who who makes the perfect plan and who loves us and will guide us along the way. We all have plans for the future. I guess you, you can't really get up tomorrow without having a plan to go to work or whatever. Perhaps they're cherished plans, plans we've had in place for years and years. Can we loosen our grip on them today? Can we turn those things over to God? Are we prepared to let God be God for us? He alone holds our futures in his hands. Will we willingly submit to his plans, knowing that he's better at being God than we are? He knows what he's doing. How will we respond when our plans don't come off? Will we rejoice that God is doing something better for us? Will we accept the disasters and the trials when they come along? And will we remember that we have God? Will we cling to him? Will we we love him? Will we draw closer to him when our plans uh, disappear and when we can't see the path that the Lord has us walking? I guess for some of us that might be very real for us right now. How will we let thanksgiving into our lives? And let me encourage you to, as you go home today to count your blessings, to begin to make a list and just see how many things the Lord has done for us. But make sure you put at the top of the list that he's given you himself. Are you able to see past all the, all the broken dreams to all that the Lord has done and is doing for you? Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, you are so great you are God uh, whose plans are far above our plans we can't begin to see what you're doing but our Father we know that you are good that you love us you're completely committed to our good and so we can cling to you when we can't see the future and we can rejoice with thanksgiving at the many ways in which you bless us every day our Father would you make us a thankful people For the sake of your glory. Amen.